Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. So before we dive into these readings today, which are heavy and challenging, let me reassure all of you that the people who put together the Revised Common Lectionary care not a whit that today is Father's Day. So no one decided to pick the reading about the demons and the guy who killed all the prophets and then wants to kill himself. Nobody picked that with Father's Day in mind, I'm here to tell you, just to put your mind at ease. But I do want you to know that I get a little hung up on Father's Day, and here's why. Because when I get up to preach, there's two things that I don't like to do. First of all, I don't like this idea that I'm on a particular day, I'm supposed to only preach to a certain kind of person. The gospel that we proclaim is for everyone. And so I don't like anything that steps in the way of that, even tangentially. And so on Mother's Day and Father's Day, I don't like the idea of, well, you're supposed to say something to the moms on this day, and then on today, it's like, well, you're supposed to say something to the dads. Don't like doing that. The message is for everyone. We proclaim the gospel to all who would hear it. But even when we do that, sometimes it's not even. Even when we say, well, all right, we're going to do something for the moms on this day, we're going to do something for the dads on this day, sometimes it's not even, right? We don't handle these days in the same way. Let me ask you a question. You ever heard anyone criticize women on Mother's Day? Here's what I'm here to tell you. You didn't hear them do it twice. (laughs) But I have heard, in my experience, maybe it's not yours. I'm not trying to put my experience on you. But my experience has had, I've heard Father's Day after Father's Day sermons telling men what they ought to be and what they're not and what they ought to do in the world. I hear that a lot. And so it's no wonder that moms want to show up to church on Mother's Day. You get the flower. You've been here the longest. You've been mom forever. Hooray. And dads, well, there's more dads here today than I thought there might be. You and I both know there's a lot of them who are on the eighth green right now. I'm not here to criticize that, by the way. In fact, (laughs) with the weather being the way it is, I wouldn't mind if we hitting a driver or two of my own. But... To the, dads in, to the dads especially, and to men in general, and to all of us, I want to invite you to take a deep breath. I'm not going to preach at you today. Hopefully, we just proclaim some good news. And maybe that good news can start in a place that doesn't always sound so good, but maybe good news can start with saying something that we know, but we're not often free to say. And the thing I want to say, particularly to men, but to us all, is that it's hard out there right now. Can we just own that for a second? It's really hard out there right now. Change has come to culture fast and furious. Not only cultural changes, I'm not just talking about tech and politics and all that kind of stuff, but there's been significant and serious changes in our social paradigms and in our moral scaffolding. Much of it has been necessary, overdue, and is worthy of our introspection and, yes, in many ways, our repentance. But in that, we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be me right now in this moment. And that is hard. Upheaval is tough. We feel the tug both of loyalty to past ways we did not create. And we feel demands pulling us quickly into a future that we cannot predict. Further, our examples of 
healthy, sound, mature masculinity in this moment seem to me anyway to mostly lean only into our worst impulses. The paradigms of what it means to be a man right now to my mind seem to be bombastic, crude, self-aggrandizing, power hungry, and often lacking moral character or spiritual depth. It's hard out there right now. And so the question is, where do we go? What do we do? Not just for us who are trying to become people, but how do we pass those virtues on to young men who come behind us? How do we pass it on to young people who are looking to us? Is there somewhere we can draw strength where deep moral courage is required and moral foundations are essential? Is there a place where we can envision a world where our battles are indeed not against flesh and blood, but rather against powers and principalities, as the book of Ephesians puts it out. Our battle is not against one another. It's against ideas. It's against ways of being. And I say yes. Into a hard world, we yet still have examples that will call us to our best selves. Though it will take some imagination on our part. It will not hand it over easily, but our faith will hand it over to us. And though the Bible does not speak directly to our particular context, spoiler alert, Facebook is never mentioned in the Bible, and American political culture is never mentioned in the Bible, Scripture does speak generally to a world in rapid change. Today we have one of those stories put before us. Despite its name, when you hear 1 Kings, you would think, well, this book has got to be this very triumphant and celebratory idea of all the kings that came after David. Well, it starts that way, but most of it is not. 1 Kings and the book that comes after 2 Kings are two volumes about an empire in decline. The kingdom of Israel very early in this narrative splits in two, Judah and Israel, And along with this political split, we also get religious and cultural underpinnings eroding underneath of everything. You're like, well, how did they erode, Pastor Sam? What does that look like? Well, here's a case in point. So Jeroboam, this will not be on the test later, but Jeroboam is a dynastic king over the kingdom of Israel as opposed to Judah. And he decides that he needs to look politically strong in comparison to the heirs of David who are ruling in Judah. These two kings that used to be one are now battling against each other and seeking power, seeking, um, seeking influence over the people. Jeroboam sees the descendants of David going into the temple to offer sacrifice. So he's like, guys, we got to do something to combat that kind of religious um, expression. And so he decides, I'm still scratching my face about it. Like, how in the world did he decide this? He decides that what he's going to do is make not one, but two golden calves. And he's going to set them up, and we're going to worship those things. Now, the golden calf, remember, got Israel in a lot of trouble back at Mount Sinai. It was the sign of worshiping idols. It is one of the great shames of Israel's history. But Jeroboam says, we got to fight those guys. And so he doesn't set up one, he sets up two. What was once unthinkable in society is now blatantly championed for political points by those in power. This is the world of first kings. It is chaos. And there are days it feels right at home. Now, out of nowhere, a man named Elijah, and we have no background on Elijah except that he is a Tishbite. And I did your homework for you. I went and looked up what a Tishbite is, and all they said is, you're from the city of Tishbe. Okay. 
That's it. All right. That was a really short entry in the Bible dictionary. But this man Elijah shows up, and he goes to the king, Ahab. You don't have to know anything about the Bible to know anybody named Ahab. Ain't great. My book lovers are nodding at me going, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking Ahab is not what you want to be called. All right, dads, take it as a little piece of advice. Don't do that to your kid. But anyway, he comes to Ahab and says, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He's like, I'm shutting off the heavens. I don't know how you do that. I don't encourage us to do that, but this is the story. Because the heavens are shut up, it is a time of great confusion and pain as famine sets over the land. And as tension builds, everybody starts crying out to their gods. We've got to have food. We've got to get moving. Something has got to break. And the story continues to develop. And Elijah finally decides that he's going to face down 450 prophets of the God that was named Baal. It was a rival God to the God of Israel that Elijah served. And it's one of the great stories of the Old Testament where they go up on the mountain and they say, we'll, set up, we'll, we'll both set up sacrifices and we'll see who the real God is, which one gets accepted. And Elijah waits and waits and waits. He kind of taps his fingers like, are you guys going to do anything? Maybe your God's asleep. He taunts them. He's such a trash talker. It's part of the reason I like this guy. Nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. And eventually God douses Elijah's offering with fire. He defeats them in this contest on Mount Carmel. In every way, Elijah is the outsider in the midst of chaos, calling out the powerful for their failure to care for the people. He is the quintessential singular voice crying out in a world that cannot hear it. He is the paradigm of the prophetic. So he's got this win, right? He's shown everybody who the most powerful God is, right? Well, except now, his life is on the line. Jezebel, who again, you don't need to know much about the Bible to know. That's another, dads, don't name your daughter Jezebel, just don't do it. Jezebel doesn't have a great reputation either. And Jezebel says, I'm going to see to it that your life ends up like the lives of those prophets by the end of the day tomorrow. And so Elijah runs. And the icon that is printed in your bulletin today is the image of this story. If it, this thing. And it's, it should be, uh, for those of you online, should, there, there we go, there we go. So on this Father's Day, I'd like to walk through another icon quickly. This icon we have before us is Elijah in the hills as Jezebel is pursuing him. As a story, what we read, what Bonnie read for us today, is really not all that interesting and in that nothing happens. There is no great prayer, there is no fire sent from heaven, there is no flood Because this is not a tale of an action, it is a window into Elijah's soul. So let's set the scene that is before us in this image. Elijah goes into the wilderness and the rocky hills and the sparse grasses that you can see give us a sense of the desolation. Not just the desolation of the wilderness, but the desolation that Elijah is feeling in this moment. It's bad enough that there's a drought. Now there's a price on his head. He can't even eat his feelings away. So he finds some shelter from the heat under a broom tree. Maybe that wasn't an interesting detail for you, but there is a tiny little broom tree. It's about the only thing with color that isn't Elijah stuck down in the corner there. I also looked up what a broom tree is. I spent a lot of time in a Bible dictionary this week. And I'm like, what's the, what's the deal with the broom tree and why would it be named? Well, here's the thing about a broom tree. Broom tree is this shrub 
said anywhere from like four feet, they can get up to like 12 feet tall, so they grow a little bit. But they, uh, they are in the mountains, and because up in the mountains, there's not a lot there in Israel, they've got roots, I'm going to say that are a mile deep, I'm being hyperbolic, very, very deep roots to weather those dry conditions. And perhaps this is the place we can enter this icon, not with Elijah, but with this little tree. Elijah takes refuge under a tree with deep roots in the quiet by himself. And we who are Christians, we who with Elijah are trying to make sense of our times, will see in any tree imagery, we are trained to think about the cross every time we read about tree. And the deep rootedness of the tree to access the water that is sparse and yet is there could remind us of what it is Psalm 1 told us. Psalm 1 said, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And if our world needs us to be anything, to do anything, it needs us to take up refuge underneath the tree with deep roots. Facing the challenges of our day does not mean greater arms, bigger muscles, harsher words. It means deeper prayers. It means more, complica- more complications, more contemplation. It means to place ourselves in the way of God's blessing. Sit ourselves down so that we can hear from God. In a perpetually moving world, we are called to stillness. And once we take up that space, a few ideas emerge. The first one that I take from Elijah is that self-doubt and doubt about one purpose has its place and it's okay. It is only in the quiet, sturdy shade of contemplation does Elijah's own feelings come out about his situation. He says, I have had enough, Lord. And if, if ever there have been words I have just said in my life mirrored in the scriptures, it is those. There are moments I've just had enough. And that's what he says. He says, God, I am done. He says, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. We don't need to unpack his feelings simply to acknowledge them and how important it is that we find places where what we're actually feeling is safe to come out. God does not hand this back to him as sin, saying, shame on you for feeling this way. No, God receives it as authenticity in the relationship between Elijah and God. God responds to it not with judgment, but with compassion. It's okay to feel the feels. It's okay to feel good about who we are, and it's okay to not be sure about who we are and where we're going and what God has called us to. That's okay. And God responds with that compassion, which brings us to another point I think about as I'm looking at this. Elijah's mission carries on not by his own strength, but by God's provision. It says an angel comes to him and says, here's some food. Like every church, just like this one that I've known and loved in my heart, they just provide a hot meal and said, hey, let's start here. Let's let the rebuild begin with something hot, shall we? And it's an expression of mercy. God provides for his immediate need. And I need you to hear this. Needs are okay. Needs are okay. And not all of them are met at once. The price on his head is not gone, but his belly, this hungry, aching man, he at least has got some food in his belly, and that's a place to start. 
perhaps some, and as we think about our neighbors, as we think about one another, perhaps sometimes it's not the gospel that we need to start with, but some food, a safe place, housing, a word of encouragement is more than enough in its moment. And it does not escape me as I look at this image that the morsel that the bird has in its mouth, which is a symbol of God's provision, yes, this idea that God comes down and provides for Elijah in his moment of need, it doesn't escape me that that thing looks an awful lot like a communion wafer. While I'm grateful we don't use communion wafers, at least when we come forward we use the bread because they're, they're a little styrofoamy. Look, can we, can we just be honest? You know what we need? We need something that tastes better. Anyway, while I'm grateful that that's not how we receive communion, the idea is clear. Communion is bread for the journey. One small bite, enough to fill the belly of a grown man and to send him on his way. And it continues on. We come to the end of the story. The angel comes back a second time and tells him to get up and eat yet again. He says, for the journey is too much for you. Now I want you to know, sitting in my office, that there's a little bit of tears coming behind my eyes when I read this. Because as I think about what it means to be a guy, what I think about what it means to be myself, I have, been, I have always put myself under the burden of God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I've lived under that burden for the entirety of my life. If it's sitting in front of you, well then you must be strong enough to handle it. And I'm here to tell you that demands soul-crushing energy. So when I hear the angel of God say, you know what, it's too much for you. Take it easy. Maybe it's true that God doesn't give us too much, but the world sure as heck might. And that's okay. We weren't made to bench press the world's problems. And God recognized that in Elijah and says, here's some more strength for you because the journey ahead of you is actually more than you can handle. And that's okay. That's okay. Those white hairs on Elijah's head are hard-earned. The journey's hard. Sometimes it's too much, and it's okay that it's too much. That's why we need help. That's why we need one another. And finally, even the most pious need needs a ra- even the most pious person needs a radical reorienting. After filling his belly, after encouraging his soul, God sits down for a chat. Remember, this is all in the context of contemplation. And Elijah says, here's my situation. I've done the heavy work. I've even taken care of the bad guys, and all they want to do is kill me. So God says, wait here, i got something to show you. And this is where we get this beautiful image, that God sends this wind. But the scripture says, well, God wasn't in the wind. There was an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. There was fire, and God wasn't there either. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Under the shade of the tree, in the scene of contemplation, with one's belly full and one's eyes tuned to God, God is not revealed in the power and ostentatiousness of the thrones, but in the quiet contemplation of both the prophet and the peasant. And it was finally, as we strung all this together, the needs that we have, the self-doubt that Elijah's feeling, the radical reorienting that Elijah needed. Remember, he had just seen God burn everything up and take care of these 450 prophets. He had seen some big stuff, and God says, yeah, that, we may have done that, but that's not who I am. In all of that, you take this story, and that's when this icon finally opened up to me. 
in all of the desolation that Elijah is feeling, the darkness threatening to swallow Elijah in the background. You can see it there, right? There's this big gaping black hole that is hinted at behind Elijah. And it's almost as if he's about to be sucked back into it. You start to discover these things that we've highlighted. There's actually a line in the icon. You could draw a straight line from the broom tree to Elijah to the bird. And it looks to me, as it goes across this black background, it is this delicate tightrope that we are called to walk. Every one of us are teetering over hopelessness. Every one of us are teetering over, where is this going? What is this life all about? Every one of us is doing that. But when we live our lives tethered to the deep contemplation and God's ongoing provision, we will walk with the white hair, the wisdom of Elijah. Now, I don't mean white hair as in age. Friends, I respect my elders, but age is no guarantee of everything, of anything. No, white hair usually means the symbol of wisdom, of having lived through some stuff and being able to pass that down to others. Wisdom means living in the light of God who is constantly revealing, constantly calling, constantly inviting us deeper into the life that is God. And so y'all, but I'll risk it here, especially guys, this is the deep life to which we are called if we're serious about a life of meaning. If we're serious about contributing something to the world, stepping out of all the, all the paradigms that we have, which seem so corrosive, and stepping into something that is healthy and life-giving, stretching that line between contemplation and God's provision, and walking in the way of wisdom, walking a life that is about meaning and purpose and virtue. It's either that or be swallowed up by the darkness of ignorance, folly, folly and destruction that defined Elijah's world and also defines ours. But we can make a choice, and God is good. So friends, hear me when I tell you, into this very difficult world that we live, please know that you are more loved than you know. And you are deeper than you suspect. And you are not defined by what you do, but rather by who you are. And so into the chaos of our moment, into the chaos that is each of our lives, May we find our moment of silence at the foot of the tree and there find God, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, but in the whisper.